0: There, there is nothing to writing all you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed and bleed, and bleed. what's this Bleeding Ink, a podcast for indie authors with J.S. Leonard you've done it you've made it to episode 2 Bleeding Ink. thank you I, you know you listening to this show just tickles my heart and makes me feel so good thank you so much Ignorance has a way of aligning itself with grief. Most writers are wholly inept to the intricacies of the publishing industry, and to them, our guest today, David Moldauer, illuminates like a prophet. He spent a decade as a nonfiction book editor at various New York publishing houses. Today, he helps people architect their books through his company called Bookatect. And, you know, my ignorance was strong when it came to traditional publishing. But after speaking with David, I've been forever changed. I think you'll feel the same way after you hear this interview. So enjoy. So David, I've got a little story for you. Um, at WDS, World Domination Summit, I was talking with Josh Kaufman. And he's, uh, you know, the personal MBA guy. And I was talking t- talking about the podcast. I was like, you know, uh, you know, Bleeding Ink, blah, blah, blah. I was trying to get him on it. And um, at this little shindig... He goes, listen, it's cool that you want to talk to me, but you got to talk to this other guy over here. And I was like, Oh, who's this other guy? He's like, it's David Moldauer. And I was like, David Moldauer, who is this gentleman? And he, came, and he walked me up to you and he introduced me to you. And I was like, Oh my God, this guy is amazing. This awesome big editor guy that, uh, is a great person, uh, that I think that, you know, the bleeding ink audience will love. And, um, David, I just want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for appearing and, um, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Am I appearing? Does this count as an appearance? Can they see me? <laughs> I think your voice is a vivid, uh, <laughs> is vivid enough. <laughs> they'll, they'll build a picture in their own mind. Um, so Dave, tell, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, where are you from? Like, what's going on? I'm
1: from right here in New York City. Grew up here. And, uh, uh, you know, the standard Manhattan experience, which I'm sure we're all familiar with mm. growing up in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um It's a it's a it's an arid place to be raised, but you're exposed to a lot of interesting things. Yeah, and uh, uh, my uh, my interests were in writing and books from a very early age, and went directly into uh, playwriting. That was my first. Oh wow. uh, interest yeah and I, I majored in theater and I I, I went out I actually worked in theater mm. for a few years and and then I decided to get serious in life because theater mm-hmm. is not a commercial enterprise Mm-mm. and so I figured book publishing was a much safer road that would lead to success and riches mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I've never been disappointed so
0: back to the editor part so you did the you did the playwright playwriting thing. So you graduated college, did some playwriting, got out of that. How did you end up you know, starting to edit these books for for these publishers? And where'd you start?
1: Well, so after yeah. after the playwriting thing, I, I kind of had this pivotal moment uh, when I was working in theater. I met a playwright who had had a play that had won the Tony Award mm. and had been turned into a movie mm. uh, starring a very famous set of actors
0: can you talk about
1: this (laughs) uh, yeah his name was david auburn and he Uh, um he wrote a play called proof proof and that was turned into a movie with gwyneth paltrow Mm. and he was interviewed at my theater where i worked and i was paying very close attention you know because when you're at that stage of a creative career you pay very close attention to what your potential role models have to say about Mm -hmm. how they succeeded Mm -hmm. and he said he still had his day job in marketing somewhere and I can't tell you, I mean, I just collapsed yeah. in, inside all my hopes and dreams. I mean, this is at a time I'd been expe- accepted into an MFA program at Columbia for playwriting uh, that would have left me maybe $250,000 in debt. Yeah. And to hear that the guy, one of the handful to write a play and to get the kind of success you want as a playwright, that he still had his day job. Uh, you know, that just put everything in a new perspective. So I, I decided it was time for a change and I got a job as a writer writing biographies Mm. for a very, very, very old company in the Bronx that's been around for over a hundred years. If you are ever uh, driving on the West side highway, you'll see there's a building up in the Bronx that has a lighthouse on the top of it, like Mm -hmm. a a relatively miniature lighthouse. (laughs) That's the place. And I wrote biographies, um, six a month. Short, wow. short biographies, and uh, it was a great opportunity because I could do all the writing and research online the day before everything was due, <laughs> and spend the rest of the time blogging. Uh, and uh, how long were these biographies? They were they were not terrible. They were a few thousand words. And oh, okay. I think this place was so old they had punch cards and everything. Even the even the quota of six articles a month was probably from an earlier era where you had to do research with periodicals and microfilm and things like that. So they hadn't quite adjusted to the world of Lexis, Nexus and Google and so we had this very modest uh, expectation and the rest of the time I blogged and got a lot of um, experience with uh, online media and 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 uh, it was it was an opportunity just to kind of let my mind wander a little bit mm-hmm. and be creative and it was at that point that I decided that as a writer I, I didn't feel like I had enough control over my destiny Mm-hmm. And and who does you know? Mm-hmm. And that was you know the book editor, which was something I hadn't really even thought thought about. I think a lot of people who read a lot don't really think about book editors as a mm-hmm. thing necessarily. Uh, but once you get into the writing world, it's like, well, who's going to decide whether I have an audience? Well, the editor. And so I just decided. I decided I was going to be a book editor, and. I talked about it with everyone I knew and eventually uh, someone who uh, had a vacation house that they shared with someone who was an assistant editor somewhere uh, said she was looking for an intern and then someone else said, you know, someone's looking for an assistant. So it just kind of came together uh, into my first job. And that's really how, how people get hired in New York publishing is just through, through connections like Mm. that. Still. Let's, let's, uh, let's define a book editor. What's, what's the, what is that role? Well, it's a big universe, and there's a lot of a lot of misunderstandings floating around about it. So I'll try to make it as simple as possible. Um, so, you, you first of all, you want to sweep academic publishing off the table because when when in that universe, there are many levels of editors, and it gets very confusing. You know, on textbooks, they can have five people editing a book: structural editors, developmental yeah. editors. It's such a project. In the world of books that we that most people think about, trade books, as, as we call them in the industry, uh, books that you buy at Barnes and Noble, and you you. know, Know, novels and and histories and that sort of thing. Uh, there's one editor, and that editor is typically the person who finds the book, um, either because it was submitted onto the, the slush pile or through an agent, and decides they want to decides they want to acquire it and and uh, puts the offer together. And if there's an auction, you know, handles the auction. And and so they acquire the book, and then they also develop de- developmentally edit the book, hmm. which isn't necessarily. Fixing the spelling. I sometimes fix the spelling. I Mm -hmm. sometimes fix the commas. But in general, you're there to uh, make the book the best book it can be in Mm -hmm. the largest possible sense Mm -hmm. and help figure out what it's going to be called and and why the audience is going to read it. Um, Very top-down kind of approach. And separate from that is someone called a copy editor. And that's the person who comes in at the very end of the process when the book is going to go into pub, into the publishing process. And, and that's the person who makes sure that the spelling and, and the grammar and the style are all correct. So it's a very, very different, an entirely different path to be a copy editor and uh, entirely different skill set. So those are the two main kinds of editors and they often get conflated.
0: Yeah, uh, I've definitely been confused by both of them. So this is... so this type of, the type of book editor you were was was a much more traditional publishing style like uh way to have a book edited right it's it wasn't like independent authors how could they benefit from someone like you or how does that or someone like you then i mean how 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 does that work traditional versus
1: independent absolutely i think uh, i think someone who is self publishing or going through a hybrid process needs an editor more than more than anybody
0: now we're um, not talking about Content editing, I mean, sorry, not content, but copy editing. We're talking about the book editor.
1: Exactly. I I think, I mean, copy editing is a nice thing to have. I don't think it's essential. Really? Um, It's something that you can get by without. I don't think you can get by without an editor. Because I'd rather have the right book with some spelling mistakes and some grammatical errors than the wrong book that's been perfectly polished.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So how many, uh, let's go back to your experience as a book editor. Uh, Who who did you work for
1: and, and how many books do you have under your belt? Oh boy! Uh, so I started out as an assistant at Riverhead, which is an imprint of uh, Penguin, mm-hmm. which is now which is now joined and become Penguin Random House. And that's that's the thing about book publishing is that if you go you go back far enough, uh, you know there are all these little imprints, and then they kind of uh, glom together into larger and larger entities, mm-hmm. and it gets very confusing to someone who's out that outside, outside the industry. Yep. We refer to a big now we can talk about the big five. When I started, it was the big six publishers, yeah. and um, so, so I about, started at Riverhead. About what year was that? Big six. Uh, big Six became Big Five, I think, two years ago, oh, around wow. roughly That's speaking. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. The the Penguin Random House merger was was a big, fairly recent shakeup, and they're still uh, figuring that out and getting the emails fixed and all that sort of thing. Because uh, I have former colleagues at both uh, both of those big companies. Mm-hmm. So Riverhead is a is a. A very famous imprint. They've done a lot of colossal books. Um, and so it was, it was trial by fire. In fact, my internship was at Norton, which is another grand old publisher, an independent publisher owned by the employees, a very unique in the space. And they, that was an amazing experience. There's, Mm. there's nothing like Norton in the universe. I'm sure you, you know, your listeners probably know the Norton anthology, but Mm. uh, Norton uh, has published many grand, uh, works of fiction and nonfiction, um, and then Riverhead was another uh, complete blue chip publisher, but um, not you know not necessarily a great fit for me. Um, my tastes are are a little bit more middle brow, mm-hmm. and so uh, <laughs> I went I went to another publisher called St. Martin's Press, um, which is part of Macmillan. Um, wasn't called Macmillan when I started. <laughs> I'm not well, really old. I'm really not that old. It's just the <laughs> space changes really fast. You're in the heart um, of it though, right? I mean,
0: Manhattan's probably where most of this takes place, right? All,
1: yeah, pretty much all of it. Yeah. Pretty so, much all
0: of it. So you're just fortunate to be in proximity.
1: <laughs> uh, absolutely. If you wanted to work in book publishing... Uh, there are a few in, in uh, on the West Coast in San Francisco, uh, you know, like Chronicle, but in general, the publishing industry is squarely in New York City, in Manhattan, and you'd have to come here if you weren't already here to work in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to St. Martin's Press, much more to my to my, my, my tone and my approach to life. Uh, they, they sometimes get accused of, of a spaghetti uh, against the wall kind of approach to publishing, but it's just, you know, they have mass tastes, and they, they do thrillers, and they do, uh, I mean, they do everything under the sun. And that was a great opportunity for me to just start publishing books uh, Mm -hmm. as a very young editor without much experience. I worked on everything from, uh, you know, sort of humor stuff all the way up to let's go. I ran the let's go travel guides. Um, It's pretty much anything I, I wanted to try my hand at. So
0: you worked on fiction and
1: nonfiction. I did a little bit of, Fiction. Okay. I acquired a, a podcast novel by a guy named J.C. Hutchins. Uh, he, he, had, he had podcasted his novel and self-published it, and I brought it to tr- the traditional publishing world um, at a time that that was a very hot area, podcast novels. Mm. Um, now everyone has a podcast, and this is, all, this is all, <laughs> all common practice. But at the time, the idea of recording y- your book and releasing it as a podcast for free was pretty revolutionary. hmm uh-huh. Uh, but, it, but in general, I steered away from that. I stuck to nonfiction and I went from there to uh, publish uh, an imprint back at Penguin called Portfolio, which is a business imprint. And uh, and I did a ton of books in that space, and they also had um, another imprint called Sentinel, which did uh, political books on the right side of the spectrum.
0: So, does someone like within these big fives? Is there just, is there just like one random person? It's like I'm going to go start my own imprint, and then you have like four hundred thousand different little teeny imprints that you can go work for. Like when because you're, you're talking about all these different names, how big are
1: these companies? They're big. They're, they're colossal, big. Wow. and uh, there. Are, I mean, there aren't that many imprints. I actually started an imprint at. Penguin. Hmm. Uh, after I'd been so you, there, you can do that. You can start showing own imprint once you, you can. You're in it's the unusual. It's okay. unusual. Okay, and it happens now and then. Uh, there has to be a, a pressing need for it because at the end of the day, you know, a lot of the imprints are quite broad a publisher like Viking can publish pretty much anything and Riverhead, you know, would do fiction and nonfiction. So, um, portfolio had what I think of as a pretty strong advantage in that it was targeted entirely around business books. And that lets you do things as a publisher in terms of connecting with an audience that you can't really do when you have a brand like Viking that is more broad. Um, cause it's like, what does Viking mean and who are our readers? Uh, Portfolio, uh, it was able to establish more of a brand. And so they had a separate brand with the same team called Sentinel in politics. And then I, um, uh, helped start a third, which was current for popular science because at the time, uh, hey. Penguin didn't really have a popular science imprint. It seemed like a great opportunity. And so now that team does all three, uh, each with their own sort of approach, uh, but the same, the same team of people.
0: Very interesting. So, do you have any crazy horror stories from any of these times when you were editing something and it just went completely wrong?
1: Uh, well, I do. I can I can keep going though.
0: Okay, I let's keep did going. More
1: houses. Oh, let's it's do it. I want to hear.
0: I want to hear about the the more
1: houses. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went from there to McGraw Hill, which is okay. a. Uh, business uh only imprint now as part of a much larger company that just split up but that that place was i mean portfolio was sort of um a businessy type imprint inside of a very prestigious trade company penguin mcgraw hill that was business 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 it's a lot like wiley uh, which also has got that very business focus, um, much more sort of workmanlike approach to publishing, wow. and because I really wanted to see what it was like when you're in a in a more of a factory approach, mm-hmm. and and how they ground those books out, and 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 just that kind of specialization really fascinated me. Mm-hmm. And then I went from there to Amazon, which was starting a New York imprint. Um, they had been doing self publishing and variations on self publishing, obviously uh, with Kindle Direct, and they wanted to create a traditional so-called publishing house in new york working with with real publishing professionals and so i helped found found that operation
0: wow is that still
1: going today it's still going in a sort of a uh, different form. Um, Amazon is a tech company, so they have a completely dif- different approach to things, um, and I'm not sure what's going to happen in the long run with that um, operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went to a startup called Creative Live, where I did I ran the business channel. So I was still working with the same authors, but we were making classes instead of books. And now I'm doing my own operation. So that's the road. Wow!
0: And creative <laughs> Creative Live, they had a presence at WDS, right?
1: Oh sure, yeah. yeah that's okay. how we found FDS in the first place.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's some that's some well produced stuff. Those classes are they seemed great. Oh, they're so you, the best. You help bro. bring you help bring that to life then, huh?
1: Yeah, the business channel. All the Interesting.
0: Business Interesting. Schools. Um, all right, so let's go back to the horror stories. You got any any crazy stories for me about some crazy sure. authors?
1: Absolutely. Just pick the um, top one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: or two well, if they're really good.
1: <laughs> you know, they're they're I can say that in general, authors are the uh, the reason I said earlier they you know you need, you need not editors that authors are in, in precisely the wrong vantage point to to decide uh, mm. anything about their book. Mm-hmm. In other words, they can write their book, but when it comes to uh, seeing their book, they have no visibility whatsoever. It's like trying to recognize someone with your eye pressed up against their cheek, mm-hmm. and um, and they're so, too close to it. They're just too close, and they will always be too close. So whether it's a professional editor or just a, a, a very trusted and experienced friend, you know, being able to offer that perspective is critical. And so you often had people with very very strong opinions about their books uh, going rogue. That's a phrase that, that that often came up. You know, like we had one guy, uh, and I won't name, name names. Maybe people will make the connection, but we had one author decide that he would. Uh, start a contest over social media to design his book cover without the publisher's permission. Oh Wow. Yeah. And yeah. And handed us a, uh, a cover that someone had created, which was questionable. <laughs> uh, uh-huh and uh we were just at that point you know once you you've you've tweeted to a vast audience and said you know the winner of my contest you, you're stuck with it as a publisher you know we had and i'm sure he realized that our hands were tied so we had we had a, a cover we wouldn't necessarily have gone with um and that those kinds of shenanigans are pretty common i think especially in the business space um these authors are the kinds of people who like to beg forgiveness and ask permission that's kind of a common uh common bit of advice and so they take that approach with their publishers Often to their detriment, and and just go out there and do something in such a way that we can't we can't change it um, mm-hmm. because there's a lack of trust. Mm-hmm. And you know sometimes that lack of trust is absolutely warranted. Sometimes the publisher really doesn't know what it's doing. But I'd say nine times out of ten uh, the publisher is right. Um, I think the authors especially experts, you know, as opposed to, let's say, a novelist, authors have a blind spot uh, that becomes their expertise. In other words, if you're, you know, and this is my experience, I call it Moldauer's first laws. If you're writing about something in particular, that's mm-hmm. your weakest area. So if you're, uh, and, I, and this is all from direct experience, if you're um, writing about Buddhism and patience and, you know, letting go of, of passion, you are mm-hmm. the angriest motherfucker mm-hmm. you have ever met. Mm-hmm. And if you're a productivity author, you will <laughs> never finish that manuscript. Never. <laughs> never. And that's because that's what you write about. You're, you, you tend to develop that expertise around your your weakest area, the thing that nags at you. And if you've got a template, you're going to be the one sitting there meditating every morning trying to get rid of it. But that doesn't change the fact that that assistant editor is going to get stomped on. Mm. By and, it, and if you're the productivity guy, you can have 15 great systems, but you're still not going to finish your manuscript. Mm. So that's, I always look at, that's the warning sign is if they're the expert on that thing, just watch out.
0: Yeah. So you're saying, um, who wrote uh, getting things done, David? uh, David Yeah. So he's saying he's a completely disorganized, disheveled (laughs)
1: mess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he might be a special case. He
0: He seems like he's got it together, but, but who knows? Now I'm curious I think I'm going to have to contact him be like, Hey, I want to know, are you really that organized? Um, So, Back to, uh, you know, you, the whole playwright thing and, and how, you know, you, you met this guy at the top of his game. You know, he's got a movie out and he still has his day job. I've heard that a lot of New York Times bestsellers still have to maintain their day jobs. Um, do, do you, is, is that is that true? And do you know, like, how to get out of that trap for
1: novelists and, and nonfiction people? Yes, I know exactly how to get out of that trap. So, mm. there's, first of all, it, you know, and the most important thing to anyone listening who is a, who is a writer, you have to understand that. We, outside, we all look at books as this monolithic thing, but in reality, they are entirely different industries that have been clumped together for reasons of, you know, ec- economics and scale and those sorts of things. Uh, the world of nonfiction, the world of fiction, even within the world of fiction, the world of romance novels mm-hmm. versus the ro- world of science fiction, they behave so differently the people within them have completely different skill sets you know when i look at a genre editor's work on a manuscript it is unrecognizable compared to my work on a on a business book in terms of what they, what they put on the paper and how much and what defines success so first of all let's step back and say what kind of writing are you doing? Mm-hmm. Because if you are in uh, one area, your chances of turning it into a sort of a what you would call a full-time profession, totally different than, than in another. You know, typically mm-hmm. experts write books, um, helping books, you know, business, health, that sort of thing, because they're supplementing, they're supporting their business. They're not looking to get out of their business. Right. They're looking to establish credibility mm-hmm. and to be the guy, the gal about that thing. And it's it's hugely valuable for them. But it's not that they're not working. It's that they're getting paid more and they're getting more work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're speaking, they're consulting, they are getting clients that they never would have gotten before, even if the book didn't sell. Mm-hmm. So that that value proposition for writing a book about your expertise is very different than the world of, of fiction. So if we're talking about the world of fiction, this is a it's a very scary, rapidly changing environment. You know, because on the one hand, you know, I was at Amazon. So one of the big things that Amazon did that was clever was that they would look at the self-published books and Mm they had the data better than anybody. You know, Mm -hmm. they had the tools, they were right in there. And so they'd pick out the stuff that was working. Even if it wasn't clear from bestseller lists, you know, they were seeing stuff that was working maybe at a lower level, but over a longer time. And they would go to those authors and they would make them an offer. They would say, hey, why don't we take over on your next book? And they would offer them all kinds of bundled deals where in return for, let's say, a smaller percentage, they would give them marketing and support and a professional editor and all the other uh, support you would expect from a traditional publisher and then some. Hmm. And the beauty of that approach was that they would have pretty much a guaranteed hit. It's like, if the book's working great by itself, imagine if it right. got on the front page of Amazon or on right. the front page of the Kindle. Right. So, um, so they've been kind of, but they changed their minds is the problem. So a lot of people have built careers and I wouldn't necessarily say they're colossally profitable, but you'll notice that frankly, that the vast majority of genre writers live in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and, and if you don't believe me, check, go look at the five, you know, uh, genre fiction authors that you love. Mm-hmm. And inevitably they're just like somewhere in the middle of Arizona. <laughs> and, and, you know, a big part of that one is you need to be, uh, you know, New York city, not the best place to go and write your thousand page novel. Because there's a lot of distractions here, uh-huh. but also they, they have a, a much easier, uh, you know, uh, nut to, to, to make in terms of, of income to be able to get by. Yeah. And so you can make a decent living, let's say, off of Kindle, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to survive in a big city. Um, but the problem is is that Amazon and the other um, providers in this space, it's not just Amazon. There's a lot of ways to sell your work. Um, they change their rules, And so if you build your entire ecosystem around selling romance novels on the Kindle and then Amazon decides tomorrow to change the percentage or some aspect of how you're getting paid, uh, you're out of luck. You have no power. And, And that's a big problem. You know, romance novelists I learned at Amazon read six to seven books on average a week. Wow. So... How do you compare that to someone buying um, the Wright brothers, you know, or, mm-hmm. or, some other big colossal work of, of nonfiction, you know, in a $27 hardcover, it's an entirely different business. Mm-hmm. So in the romance world, th- they are not discriminating. It's really very much uh, about what's in front of me. Mm-hmm. I finished that book and tomorrow I'm going to read the next book. And if it pops up and it's got the right cover, I'm going to buy it and I'm going to spend $2, but not 3 And, you know, so it's a, it's a fungible commodity Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, that's great if you can crank it out, but you have to have the, you have to understand what's involved in making it work as a romance novelist. You have to create a tremendous amount of material. You have to be, you know, hit that formula, get the pricing exactly right. And you've just got to churn it and churn it and churn it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that that's financially feasible for, for that author.
0: And this is something that you help design now, right? Figuring out all those different tactics and how the book should be positioned in a market. Is that, is that- That's what? right.
1: I okay. focus, I mean, my specialty is nonfiction, so it's a, a different approach. But
0: sure, but it's sure, similar. Strategy. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what you offer today.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, when I was a, when I was at Creative Live, I was working with a lot of the same authors that I had edited previously, um, I've worked on a number of best-selling books in business and science and technology, and um, so I, I sort of reached out to those folks when I went to Creative Live, and I said, "Hey guys, you know, can you come teach a class?" Mm-hmm. So I sort of I got an opportunity to start talking to them once I was outside of that world, mm-hmm. and people people act differently when they don't think you're going to be the one to buy or not buy their book. Mm-hmm. You get you get a more honest perspective. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I ran into over and over again, not just with the people I worked with, but with people who I reached out to who were business experts who hadn't done a book or had done best selling books, is they were lost. They were lost. And the story I heard over and over again was this thing I was doing doesn't work anymore. I don't understand this new space. My audience, you know, I used to be able to go on the Today Show and my book would sell. Now nothing happens. You know, and uh, so all the the whole model had changed and they were lost. And I felt that if I went back in as an editor, I wasn't going to be able to serve them from traditional publishing. You know, Mm -hmm. the traditional publishing model, my skill set would have been going to waste. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying traditional publishing doesn't have a place, I just felt like my skill set would have been wasted because there's only so much you can do uh, once you're at that stage. It's a bit like being a high school teacher, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to get them in kindergarten. And sometimes, by the time they get to high school, there's only so much you can do. Yep. And I felt like being an agent didn't necessarily make sense because uh, while some agents are great and they can really work with their clients, developing the idea and the proposal and, and getting it just right, many more, you know, they have to sell books and move on. Mm-hmm. And also, the whole agenting model in, in some areas, you have to wonder about it when you have two, maybe three imprints that are a destination for a category. How do you how do you make a, add value when all all you're doing is emailing a proposal to three people or two people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a hard, it's a changing environment. So I felt like, hey, you know, I'm 37 years old. Um, I need to think about where I'm going to be 20 years from now. Uh, what is not going away? And and to me, it was helping uh, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm doing right now is i am helping people not just with the book, but with the entire content strategy, figuring yeah. out you know, who are you, what are you looking to accomplish, and how are we going to get there? The book is at the center of it, but it can extend into everything from your, your online platform into your classes, which is increasingly important to people in this space. How are you gonna get what you do to the people who are going to find value in it? And so I'm helping people across the spectrum from the editorial to the marketing, creating everything from creating proposals to editing books to developing classes to developing their author platform. And it allows me to get you know, in deep with fewer people as opposed to churning, you know, just doing book proposals day after day after day. And um, it feels like a really good fit because for these people, you know, this is their business. You know, that content is their business. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So let's walk through that process then. I don't know, give me give me a good give me a good vertical to, to, to be in to come Sure, at you.
1: negotiation.
0: All right, so oh, good negotiation. That's good. So I come at you and I'm like, look, I want to ex- so I want to expand my career. I would come to you and say, how can we do this? And and I want to funnel this energy, this this strategy through a book. Is that and that's kind of where you'd come in, right? We we'd, we'd focus solely on how the book is the sort of pivot, the center point of, of that entire strategy, and then you build sort of a foundation around it. Is that? Yeah. uh, I mean, basically, you know,
1: even before the book, what what the book does is it crystallizes you, mm -hmm. you know, what what we have online now and people of a certain generation, you know, they start online, they start with a blog, they start with, with something online and they build an audience. And what happens is as you grow the audience, the audience follows you right day Mm -hmm. after day, the audience follows you and they start to have an opinion. Mm -hmm. They start to give you feedback and they start to say, we like more of this, less of this. Mm -hmm. And your what you do starts to morph. Day after day after day, your audience can still be growing, but you kind of get into a rut in the sense of you, you know what you're going to do. Are you going to chase a new audience with this post, or are you going to cater to your existing audience, which by now is maybe a nice size? Mm-hmm. And um, after a time, and you'll notice this if you look at folks who've been around a long time, like bloggers from from the ancient days of you know 2005. Uh, if you went, if you go to their site today and you didn't know them before, you'd have no idea. Why they had so many readers. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't you don't understand what they're talking about. You don't know what brings them together. There there's no brand because there's they're talking, they're they're in the middle of a conversation. Mm. And that changes day after day. And their their front page is not is no longer an introduction to who they are and why you should care.
0: You just wrote about this in a recent newsletter article, right?
1: Yes, I did. And yeah. it's a common it's a common refrain because people yeah clients that I talk to, the, the, one of the most common things they say is, why? Why am I doing a book? You've just finished telling me that I'm not going to get rich off of this thing, and I'm not going to get on the New York Times bestseller list. And why, why am I doing this? This is two years of work minimum. Mm-hmm. And what I've, been trying to, uh, what I've been trying to articulate is how valuable I've seen this for so many authors. I really have never had the experience of one of my authors uh, regretting the book. Mm-hmm. Ever. Ever. No matter how poorly it does, even if they get, just get finished telling me how terrible their experience was, even at another publisher that was a second-tier publisher and the book was a disaster, after they're done complaining, it still had a, the the overall impact was positive mm-hmm. uh, because it it crystallizes you. It's like who is this guy, mm-hmm. and and that is a, a question we ask more and more online. Who is this guy? Who mm-hmm. is this person? Why should I listen to this person? What are they about? And the book is the thing that you could always hand someone and it explains what you're about.
0: Right. It it builds your authority on on a subject. And I think that's really important. I think people like Nathan Berry talk about that too. Um, So this sounds like it works really well for nonfiction people. Is there any way this strategy could work for a fiction author?
1: Well, fiction is a different thing because fiction is the product, right? And in nonfiction, the expertise is the product, but you know, the book is, is one part of it. But in the end of the day, we want to know what you know how to do. Mm-hmm. In fiction, I don't want to know how to write like Stephen King. I want to have that experience that he's able to give me. Yeah. And what they, what, what's important about writing fiction is expectations and consistency. People want to know what they're going to get from your books. And they use there are all kinds of tools and strategies that people use to do this. And and we were talking before we started recording about, for example, pen names. And how when you have someone who writes in a certain style and they have an audience, it's critical for them when they start writing in another style or another genre to um, differentiate it. And usually the, the easiest way to do that that works across formats is to have a pen name. And that way, the people who love you for your thrillers understand, even if they know it's still you under a pen name, they understand that this other thing you do is science fiction. And, and that's, that's what it is, is that people have less and less patience. If your book wasn't written 30 years ago, I mean, obviously there's a lot of people buying Ghost out of Watchmen right now, but uh, they'll let, you know, they'll let um, Harper get away with, although we we can question whether it is Harper who chose to do that, but um, you know, that's a different world. Now, if you want someone to come to your book now, they don't know who you are, and you mm-hmm. want them to invest in you. You have to give them the clear expectations. And mm-hmm. so, publishing in fiction is all about you know: does the cover tell me what kind of book this is? Does the title tell me what kind of book this is? And it takes a lot of experience. Um, and it's not enough to just be a reader. It takes a lot of experience to really understand the larger scope of that genre you're working in, to understand all the the dog whistles, um, which is a term that came up also on the nonfiction side. You know, those little subtle cues that you may not even notice the font mm-hmm. or the kind of image used on the cover that mm-hmm. tells someone that this is a published book, that this is the real deal and not, you know, how many times have you had that experience of, of getting a book, especially nowadays on Amazon, because Amazon goes works so hard to mix um, self-published with published works and to not let you tell the difference um, of downloading something and saying, what is this? Uh, You know, it can have 400 uh, reviews, four and a half star average, but you realize as soon as you start reading the first chapter that all of those people reviewing the book come from that author's little community Mm-hmm. and that's a lot to a to a new reader to this this is not uh, primetime material this mm-hmm. is not mainstream quality writing and um, so those cues become very important uh, to show them to show readers that this is a, this is a real book this is a quality professional grade book and and that's where the expertise comes in.
0: Yeah, how how important would you say it is to actually build a persona around your like name, so that when someone approaches you, it's not. I mean, it's, it's about the book cover. It's about you know the font and all those things. And I want to get into that a little bit too about analyzing that and how the analytics work. But how important is it also to have that persona that goes along with it? Um, I mean, you have a name, right? But there's nothing to attach to the name. Do you help people build personas?
1: I do help people build personas for sure, because that's what, that's what we're talking about. I I don't like the word brand. It's unavoidable. I have not Mm -hmm. found a better word, but at the end of the day, you have, um, that stands in for all the questions that the, that the reader has, you know, when I, when I look at a a book cover, I kind of, when I explain to uh, authors about how to sort of create the book, um, I always start from the material. So I go from the broadest possible space. Like let's look at the big chunk that you wrote. And then I narrow it in to the table of contents and, and smaller and smaller all the way up to the title. Mm-hmm. And the title, um, is not the menu. Mm-hmm. The title is a billboard. Mm-hmm. It's what grabs you. Mm-hmm. And so it's that smallest possible hook that you get into the reader. And then they read a little bit more and you get more hooks into them. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: part of that tiny little hook is, is the author. It's an, it's another opportunity in addition to the title to grab them. So if they have some association with you as an author, your name, that's like a second little billboard that you can grab them on. (laughs) So speaking of
0: hooks, um, and you talked about this with Amazon and they just put, you know, traditional and self-published works together. How important today do you think it is to come from a big imprint to readers? Like will a reader choose one imprint over another? Um, where, where do you see that?
1: Readers won't. So there's a, there's a spectrum. So on, on one end of the spectrum in trade, all the way on one end is romance novels. Mm-hmm. By far the most successful category on Kindle. Yep. By far the most uh, commodity-like. And this is not a judgment on it. I think no. a well-crafted romance novel is a thing of beauty uh, because there's so much craft involved. But it is the most, uh, you know, you read one, you read another, you read another. And who the author is, is the, the least important it is the least distinctive. In other words, you could put two really well-crafted romance novels right next to each other, and they're going to be more similar than any two other in, in any other category. So that's on one end, and that's where the publisher is the least important. Um, it's really about just give me, give me the thing that I want. On the other, far, far, far end of the spectrum. In fiction is literary fiction, mm-hmm. which is literary doesn't even mean anything. It's li- mm-hmm. it's a lack, complete lack of description, right. and and that's where all these subtle things. That is the one category where people really will buy a book because of the publisher. Mm-hmm. You know, a publisher like FSG or Knopf. You know that that really does have an effect because in that world they have no cues. Mm-hmm. There's so little information. The titles are deliberately obscure. Mm. You know the the author. So the author's persona is so important and the looks of the author. I mean, to, to put it frankly, you know, the the appearance of the author is colossally important in literary fiction. Is this person beautiful or appealing, alluring, interesting? Do they, are they famous? Are they related to, to someone famous? Are they, um, do they have strange behavior? It's a lot like the fine art world, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, I don't understand this painting, but I heard that the guy's like, uh, uh, has very strange behaviors, you know what I mean? Like this, this person is really odd and he slept on the roof of the Met one time. He kind of, he's you know, like that, that, right. that kind of quirkiness is the, is, is, you could say, well, it's because artists are crazy, but you could also say that's branding. It's a way of saying, okay, maybe you understand what this novel's about, maybe you don't, but it's you know because it might be experimental or it might be you know who knows what. But the the author's persona goes a long way towards convincing the reader that this is something they're going to be interested in reading. Yeah, and so that's so that's the spectrum. It goes from being almost. Completely unimportant to being completely critical, because take that out of it, and most of the biggest literary novels of the last however long would never have been read by anybody, because there's there's literally nothing on the outside of it that would tell you what's inside the book. Hmm. Well, I mean, there is that, but then you've got
0: Amazon reviews, right? I mean, you have word of mouth now, which I think can help you filter, you know, get some
1: signal in that noise. Um, you know, well, you know what's not—that's not really the case, because mm-hmm. Amazon reviews. Are really good. Amazon is really good at reviewing commodities and reviews in general, uh, mass reviews, crowdsource reviews are great at reviewing commodities. So when you get into the most genre work, uh, that's great. Uh, a romance novel is a romance novel. If they love it, chances are you love it because it hits the points and it does, the, does what it needs sure. to do. Science fiction, a little trickier, right? It's, it's also a genre, but there's so many different kinds of science fiction. Hard science fiction, soft, and this one could be about politics. This one could just be about big spaceships, and people have very different tastes. And you'll notice that the best science fiction novels, you know, Neil Stevenson's latest novel, they can have very mixed reviews, very mixed reviews. Mm-hmm. And you can have a book that you know is a, is a, a masterpiece, and it could have a three and a half. Right. You know, it's funny. And when you get into literary, it's all over the map.
0: Right. What, what I find interesting is that three and a half is considered
1: bad. <laughs> well, you, you know, know, because we think of it like toothpaste. You know, if you see a toothpaste with a three-star average review, steer away from that toothpaste, right? right? Uh, And the same goes for romance novel. Like, watch out if you see a romance novel with three stars. Hmm. But, when you get into the the, the sort of the higher brow and the literary and the more polarizing work, you can pretty much expect it to have a fairly low rating. You know, Mm -hmm. a book can be a prize award winning life changing masterpiece but by its very nature it's going to be challenging it's going to be polarizing and you're going to get and the review is going to be useless mm-hmm. and the advertising is useless amazon is terrible at selling that kind of book terrible and that's why you still see independent bookstores and even Barnes & Noble being such a factor in the success of books that are not easily pigeonholed, um, sort of fungible commodity genres. So you're saying if you're going to write
0: literary fiction or any any challenging work of fiction, it's probably going to behoove you to try and go through an imprint that supports that. Um, oh, without doubt. self Self-publishing is going to be tricky and challenging. In that regard, because it's more commodity based, is what you're saying.
1: Without a doubt, unless you, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to be creative in that space. Yeah. Yes. The easiest and most straightforward way is to go through a traditional publisher. But the reality is, there's a lot of audiences out there—the uh, audience of the New Yorker, the audience of the New York Times—that that go towards these things. So you can also ask yourself: I've got this challenging piece of work. How can I reach? That audience, the existing audience that is going to be drawn to this kind of thing? How can I grab their attention? Mm -hmm. And there have been authors who are kind of in that space who have been able to get their work out there online in one form or another. Um, And they might eventually end up with a traditional publisher, but they were able to find that audience. But you have Mm -hmm. to understand who is going to be interested in that kind of book. So research is involved and expertise is involved.
0: Now, where where, where could someone find that expertise? I mean, would that be something you could do?
1: Uh, in the nonfiction space, like I would definitely nonfiction. say in, in fiction, you want to look at your genre. And even the literary fiction is a, is a weird, broad category. Uh, from my experience, the people who write in it, they they know where they land. They know at least the writers they're similar to, which is frankly, for anyone, one of the most important things that you can understand. If you really understand where you fit in the constellation of other authors, if, you know, I'm a mix of so-and-so and so-and-so, the, the more clear picture you have of that, the better, the easier it's going to be because you can look at, well, what we're for him? Mm-hmm. What worked for her? Who published her? Who is his agent? Mm-hmm. And and if you can go to that agent and say, hey, you published this person, I'm like that person, and this person mixed together, they'll be much more interested in you than just sending them that typical unsolicited submission. Do you know what I mean? It, it mm-hmm. shows you understand where you fit in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Let's talk
0: about then pursuing publishing channels, because I, I want to talk about the advantages and disadvantages of going traditional, going hybrid, and also going independent, and what like, what questions should you be asking yourself before you pursue any of those?
1: What are you trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. People often come into this with very hazy expectations. I'm writing a book because my mom will be impressed. I'm writing a book because someone was mean to me in high school. You really have to sit down and say, "What is the bare minimum at the end of this process that I'm going to call a success? hmm if it's a New York Times bestseller you want, get out your checkbook. I hope you have a quarter of a million dollars because you're going to have to buy it for yourself. Okay. And, and you have to be honest with yourself. If, that, if that's really what you want out of life, you have to be honest what, with yourself.
0: What are you buying? Are you, you mean the media buy that's required to get your book out there so that no, it sells? media doesn't sell books. You, you
1: need to buy the copies. I mean, there's companies that will buy, your, buy you onto the bestseller list. Oh, no, oh, yeah.
0: Will that, that give you the visibility required to actually make more sales?
1: Not necessarily.
0: Okay.
1: So that's (laughs) That's just—that's my point. Is that—is it about more sales or is it about being on the bestseller list? If it's about more sales, then put the bestseller list entirely out of your mind because it's not a useful goal. And and are you trying to achieve impact? Are you trying to achieve change? Are you trying to just have a reputation in your area? And if you're writing, you know, if you're writing books, obviously, uh, if you're writing fiction, your goal is to sell as many copies as possible. I don't think anyone can really argue with that. And, um, and you know, obviously there's a lot of uh, weird emotions that come up for creative people where they can kind of turn up their nose at someone who sold a lot of copies. Um, but the reality is we're trying to sell more copies in fiction. That's That's the only goal. There's not some, it's not like a side hustle for your larger business the way nonfiction can be. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't sold a lot of copies, you probably wish you sold more. Mm -hmm. And and so then self-publishing versus publishing comes down to, well, which is going to get me the kind of publication that I want? Mm -hmm. And it comes back to, well, who am I like? You know, what does a successful book in this category look like? And, and like I said, you know, commercial fiction, women's fiction, beach reads, those still thrive in the traditional publishing environment for a lot of reasons. You know, bookstores, reading clubs, there's a lot of infrastructure still in, in those categories where going the traditional route is going to um, help Tremendously, mm-hmm. but when you the further you go on the genre spectrum, the less and less traditional publish, publishers can offer you.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the hybrid route. I mean, how, how do you see that playing in, in, in this now?
1: Well, it's a, it's a, it's a really new space and Mm -hmm. it's tricky because at the end of the day, you can absolutely have a terrible experience with, with Penguin Random House. I'm not going to pretend for a minute, but your chances are pretty good that you're going to have a pretty professional experience. Whatever imprint you go to, they know their business pretty much. Accidents happen, books are fumbled. But when you work with a hybrid publisher, you're typically working with a fairly new company. Mm-hmm. With uh, they might have worked, you know, in a, in, a, in a traditional publisher, but you're dealing with a, a new entity. And so there's some risk involved,
0: right? Let's take a step back. Let's let's let's. What can a traditional publisher provide someone that they the self-publishing? You know, wh- where do they facilitate where self-publishers can't? And then what does a hybrid like? Where do they solve the problems versus traditional publishing? So what does a traditional publisher give you that you can't do on your own?
1: more than anything else, the fact that they selected you. Okay. And while, while readers don't necessarily pay any attention, although, like I said, on the far ends of literary and that sort of thing, they do pay attention, um, the, all the infrastructure around it, the TV show that might have you on as a guest, the radio show, the magazine, the reviewer, all of those sectors tend to pay all their attention to traditional publishing. And by the way, if you're a reviewer, you're already overwhelmed with books coming in from traditional publishers, right. so you are the least likely to say to also open the gates to self-published books, and they use it as a filtering mechanism. It might be an imperfect filtering mechanism, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, fresh air on NPR—they have more than enough to look at. In the traditional world, mm-hmm. than to, to worry about uh, someone sending in their own book, so there's a mm-hmm. filtering mechanism that uh, and and a, a legitimacy kind of a stamp that you get when you're published traditionally. That uh, I think becomes more valuable the more the traditional publishing world collapses and compresses in on itself because there's fewer publishers. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? There's just there's less to go around, and it becomes more and more important to have that stamp for the for the sectors that need it mm-hmm. in those areas.
0: So then what does a hybrid publisher offer?
1: Well, that's, that's, see, that's where it gets interesting. So so some hybrids, I would think, in the next few years are going to start to build a reputation for themselves because mm-hmm. they start to do good books. And some already have done a number of uh, successful books. And if you're an author, you're going to say, hey, wait a second, you know this hybrid has done 20 books, and, and five of them are books that are, have been quite successful and sold a lot of copies. They, they probably know what they're doing uh, in terms of their category. And you want to look at a hybrid publisher that specializes. I would be deeply skeptical of, of a hybrid publisher that will publish any kind of book that comes in the door. Um, but also they are there for people who just don't want to learn how to be a publisher. When you self publish, it is not easier. And I can't emphasize this enough because I hear this so much. I've heard people say this to me. It's like any idiot can publish a book. I saw this idiot on Oprah and he doesn't know his stuff and I'm an expert on this area. So I can write a book and, and just throw it out there. And it's like, well that guy may not be as much of an expert as you are in your area but he sure as hell is a better marketer than you and a better publisher than you. You know, he understands how to get himself out there, how to brand himself. There is an entire area of skill outside of what the book is, whether the book is a novel or, or nonfiction that you have to learn if you're going to self publish correctly. And so Mm -hmm. the hybrid publisher basically offers you that expertise without the imprimatur of a traditional publisher. And in return, you get a lot more of the upside Mm-hmm. So they can't they can't say you're a penguin author, right? So you're it's still sort of halfway being published, so to speak. But you do get a much higher percentage of the profits if the book works. So it's kind of a trade off. It's a halfway.
0: Are any of the big five exploring this sort of domain? Are they?
1: Are yeah, they creating Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, there's a whole controversy in the larger publishing universe around author solutions and this um, there's this kind of self publishing. Gambit that some of the the big five publishers are doing, where they will kind of lend their name to uh, a, a publishing for a fee operation. I mean, there's a lot of games that people play, and if you don't have, I mean, this is one of the things that I offer. You know, ha- without having someone on the inside who understands the industry, it's it's pretty easy to be hoodwinked. You really have to Google. You have to do your research. Um, something can look like an imprint of Simon and Schuster, but not actually be an imprint. Mm. But be, uh, if you're paying to get your book published already, you watch out. Mm. Um, if you think you're being traditionally published, you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, hy- hybrids have fees sometimes, but you know if you if you think you're being traditionally published and you're paying, you're, you're, you've gone down the wrong path. And there are some great sites out there. Um, I think Author Beware is that one of them. There's a few sites out there where you can kind of look up agents, look up publishers, and get um, the inside scoop. But you have to do your research, um, you know. And that's and that's one of the things. You go to a traditional publisher. You go to an, uh, you know the traditional route there's a lot fewer things that can go wrong and and that 's you know for some people, if you work for years in a book you, you don 't want that thing to combust you know i 've mm-hmm. had the experience one guy. Uh, I think he worked with a services or a hybrid publisher, um, but he was kind of doing things mostly on his own. It's often an a la carte kind of thing. Like they'll, they'll find you the copy editor, they'll find you the cover designer, you know, but, but you put it on Amazon. It's a, it's a mixture in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, in the, in the nonfiction realm, right? So he had an audience. That's often what the big distinction is. A, a first time novelist doesn't have an audience yet. Traditional publisher might help them find one yeah. in nonfiction. Generally you have an audience, you don't just mm-hmm. walk in out of nowhere. So he told them, he said, hey, my book's coming out on Monday. And then when he went to Amazon, uh, whatever he did to, to set the book up on Amazon, something went wrong. Mm. And when he went to Amazon, his book page was up and it said out of stock. Now he knew he had published through CreateSpace, which is Amazon's book publishing uh, service. Yep. So the copies are there. So where are they? So it says available from other sellers. Now that's typically what you see when the book has been used and sold and Mm -hmm. now it's available somewhere else. No, it was his own copy. So if you clicked on that, you went through and it said it's available from other sellers and that other seller is Amazon that has (laughs) X number of copies in the warehouse. Now, what setting did he screw up to cause that to happen? Who knows? Did Amazon pay any attention to him trying to get it fixed? Yeah, it took like a month. You know, because he's not Penguin. Sure. The beauty of working with a traditional publisher is they have these mechanisms in place. They do it every single day. If there's a problem, they can get Amazon on the phone. They have a vendor that they pay a quarter million dollars a year for with Amazon. You know, there's, there's that apparatus in place. And so you're, you're taking a risk when you go at yourself and you don't have the expertise.
0: But I mean, once that guy, you know, worked through the kinks, you, I mean, there's a split, right, of how much you're going to get paid from your book. If you go through traditional publishing, it's a lot less than self-publishing. You know, once he got that worked out, I mean, at the end of the day, like six months over a long period of time, you know, would he have walked away with the same amount of money? They'd probably more money.
1: But he, you know, he wasn't doing it for the money. He was right. doing it for his exp- his Expert credibility, so which is different. damaged, right? Okay. Because he just emailed his old, whole audience and the book is available and it's not there. That's embarrassing. That's unprofessional. Mm. Uh, But, you know, even if it, if you were a first time novelist, right, no one would know if a tree falls in the forest, right? If your book doesn't show up on pub day and you're a first time novelist, who who cares? No one even knew it was coming out, you Mm -hmm. know? So, so it's a lot safer. You can play around and you can make mistakes. But if you're a second time novelist and you've Mm -hmm. built up an audience, you're one of these people who's just grinding out genre novels and your audience is waiting for them. When you make those mistakes, they come back to bite you. Mm -hmm. And, and another thing I should point out that traditional publishing does that, that the other models don't is there's a whole world out there. You know, there's an international marketplace and they can, if your book really works, they can get it to the next level in a way that you never could on your own. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. can be colossal that in money wise, that can be colossal in fiction. Mm. Yeah. In fiction.
0: <clears throat> well, we're going to be wrapping up here soon. I did want to say one thing. So I subscribed to your newsletter and, I am, I am in love with your writing style. You have phenomenal control over language, my friend. And I love it. (laughs) No, seriously. Cause like, I, I, you know, I I subscribe to quite a few newsletters and no one's really bad at writing that I subscribe to. They're all clear, but you, you have, you care about the craft and the language. And I can tell, and I really appreciate that. Like I, I get excited when I see one of your emails come in. I'm like, Ooh, this is going to scratch my writing itch, you know? So I got to say, I love it. Um, where can people find out more about you and your company, Bookitect?
1: So that's Bookitect.com. It's like book architect mixed together. Uh, mm-hmm. I was very proud of finding that name. Uh, so it's B-O-O-K-I-T-E-C-T.com. And you can also subscribe to the newsletter, which is not for everyone. It's for people who are really interested in books and publishing and, and communicating ideas. And, uh, and so expect some opinions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a little inside baseball, to be honest, as you as you probably have noticed. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's
0: good. <laughs> well, David, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I, the tremendous amount of information, uh, I think, distributed here and I think a, a lot of value. So I want to thank you and um, I hope we keep in touch and talk soon.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. And I would also say that if any of your listeners have questions, they want to follow me up after the mm-hmm. show. My email address is on my site. Mm-hmm. Happy cool. to
0: answer questions. Yeah, we'll link to it and uh, be sure to take that opportunity, yep, people. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more episodes and giveaways, head over to www.bleedingink.fm. That's www.bleedingink.fm. If you want to help me out even more, you can go check out my book, Modern Rituals, The Wayward 3, on Amazon today. And also, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a software guy, and I make tools for writers. Check out jslauthor.com. That's for JS Leonard, jslauthor.com. There you can sign up for my mailing list, get free tools, and all kinds of awesome stuff. Thanks for listening. The ink has run dry See you next time